Welcome to today's edition of Insights from the Commonwealth Club, a weekly broadcast with thoughtful perspectives on important topics from the club's programming. Today, two exceptional scientists share their perspectives about our Earth and its moon. Are we doing enough to protect our planet? And what have we really learned about the moon since we last visited 50 years ago? With our world changing at a rapid pace, astrophysicist Martin Rees explains why the future of humanity is tied to the future of science. We can't have 9 billion people all living in the same way as most of us here do, using as much energy and eating as much beef. And astronomer Andrew Fracknoy looks at the past, present, and future of our moon. Where did the moon come from? How come all our neighbor planets don't have a moon and we have a big moon? We'll be back shortly with fascinating stories from astronomers Martin Rees and Andrew Fracknoy on this edition of Insights from the Commonwealth Club. With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club, and this is Insights. Thank you for joining us today as we discuss what we've learned about the planet beneath our feet and the moon in our sky. In our first segment, we meet world-renowned British cosmologist and astrophysicist Dr. Martin Rees, director of the Cambridge University Institute of Astronomy, Master of Trinity College, and Astronomer Royal. According to him, humanity has reached a critical moment in which there is no plan B for planet Earth. Later, we'll take a trip to the moon with the esteemed former chair of the astronomy department at Foothill College in Los Altos, California, Andrew Fracknoy. In our first segment, Martin Rees says that the future of humanity is closely linked with the future of science, and it hinges on how successfully we harness technological advances to address our challenges. The idea of actually growing meat from a single cell, something which is being discussed, and I think that would be hugely beneficial for the world. If we are to use science to solve our problems while avoiding its dystopian risks, he argues, we need to think rationally, globally, collectively, and optimistically about the long term. Uh, But we can, on the other hand, have a world in which 9 billion people live a good life if they perhaps uh, um, have a slightly different diet and uh, use energy more efficiently and we have clean energy. Martin Rees is in conversation with guest moderator Alison Van Diggelen, the host of Fresh Dialogues and a contributor to the BBC. Let's listen in as Martin discusses our amazing planet and beyond. Martin Rees, we're delighted to have you here in Silicon Valley to help us explore the challenges that humanity faces, as well as inspire us to find and support solutions to those threats. Great to be here. Tonight, I'd like to focus more on the solutions than the threats. We want to leave here tonight feeling inspired about solutions. (laughs) That's asking Uh, a lot. But first, I'd love you to explain your title. You have quite an unusual title, certainly to the American ear. You are the Astronomer Royal. What does that mean and what does it not mean? Well, it's a rather antique title, and in fact, the Astronomer Royal was the person who used to run the Greenwich Observatory. It was set up in 1675, and he was really the first government 
funded scientist of any kind, because, of course, astronomy is important for um, the calendar, navigation, etc. Um, and that was the job of the Astronomer Royal until the 1960s. But then it became possible to have telescopes, not under the cloudy skies of London, but to travel to uh, Canary Islands, Hawaii and Chile, which is where we have our telescopes now. And then the Greenwich Observatory became a museum and they kept the title, but they made it a sort of honorary title um, given to some senior academic astronomer. Um, and uh, I like to say the duties are so exiguous, I can do them posthumously. I need never give up. So let's explore climate change. You write, under business as usual scenarios in which the world continues to depend on fossil fuels, we can't rule out later this century catastrophic warming and tipping points triggering long-term trends like the melting of Greenland's ice cap. Can you expand on that and the implications for food supply, mass migration, etc.? Yes. We all know that uh, uh, fossil fuels are leading to CO2, which is causing the temperature to rise. Um, and uh, the temperature rise is just an indication of changes in global weather patterns. We don't know how fast these are because there's an uncertainty in the sort of feedback effects, uncertainty in how cloud cover and water vapor changes. So we know there's an uncertainty in the science and an uncertainty in the other projections. But I think everyone knows that on some of the projections, uh, we will get into dangerous territory under business as usual by the end of a century. And that, of course, is the motive for the uh, Paris Climate Conference and all this. Now, if you ask me what we're going to do about it, then, uh, of course, as you know, there's a discussion of carbon taxes and all that sort of thing. I'm pessimistic about those being politically acceptable because it's very hard to get politicians whose focus is normally on the, uh, the local and the short term to care about something which is going to affect mainly people in remote parts of the world 50 years from now. That's very hard. So what I say in my book is that the one win-win situation is to enhance research and development into all forms of carbon-free energy. And I include nuclear power in this. Um, because if we can accelerate the research and development into clean energy and all the things that go with it, energy storage, batteries and uh, DC grids spanning continents, all these things, then uh, we will be able to uh, persuade everyone it's better to have clean energy. And if the cost of clean energy comes down, then in India, for instance, where at the moment they don't have enough energy and they have smoky stoves burning wood and dung in people's homes very unhealthily, and they are obviously in need of a national grid, and they're going to build lots of coal-fired power stations, unless the alternative is cheaper. So I would say that we need R&D on the scale of defense research or medical research to really develop optimum clean energy and its appurtenances so that the countries that develop it will have a bonanza in selling it to the rest of the world and countries like India will be able to leapfrog directly to clean energy. And that, I think, is the only way that we can envisage a scenario where the carbon dioxide concentration never gets up to a dangerous level. Right. So you praise companies like, you know, it, the population explosion is going to 
have implications for our food supply. Mm. You praise companies like Impossible Foods here in Silicon yes. Valley. They make a meatless burger. What other innovations here and around the world have you, mm. would you cite as making yes. a substantive impact to that search mm. for yes. food solutions? Well, I think um, if uh, we, we, we can't have 9 billion people all living in the same way as most of us here do, um, using as much energy and eating as much beef. Um, but we can, on the other hand, have a world in which um, uh, 9 billion people live a good life uh, if they perhaps uh, um, have a slightly different diet and uh, use energy more efficiently and we have clean energy. And I would say that one of the technologies that is extremely benign uh, is artificial meat. Of course, what we now have is, as it were, rather low-tech artificial meat, but the idea of um, actually uh, growing uh, meat from a single cell uh, is something which is being discussed, and I think that sort of thing would be hugely beneficial for the world, uh, and also other ways in which we can um, uh, grow food for 9 billion people without using up all the world's land mass, because there's also the issue that we want to uh, preserve as much wild land, because another uh, uh, of our uh, obligations to future generations is surely to not leave a depleted world a less biodiverse world. And of course, to quote the um, great ecologist E.O. Wilson, if our generation causes mass extinctions, it's a sin that future generations will least forgive us for. And to avoid causing mass extinctions, we've got to leave plenty of wild land and not take it all over for um, food growing or indeed for biofuels either. Um, yeah. The Economist this week had a lead story about China's growing dominance in science. Yes. It says, the looming prospect of a dominant rule-breaking, rule high-tech China alarms Western politicians. Should the world worry and should we? Well, it's not clear they'll break the rules any more than the West will. I mean, I think uh, uh, this example has been condemned by a Chinese scientist. But I think it is clear that the, uh, uh, the four centuries of uh, uh, dominance of the North Atlantic, Europe and the US is going to change because it's going to be in East Asia where the uh, uh, human capital is going to be concentrated in the next 50 years and the financial capital. So I think it is natural that the um, uh, dominant scientific power will be China and East Asia. And we shouldn't deplore that. That's where the population is. It's not a zero-sum game. The more people we have doing these things, the better. So I think it's realistic to expect that China is going to be the dominant power 50 years from now. Um, and uh, um, we, we shouldn't deplore this. It's inevitable um, and it's not a zero-sum game. So let's talk about artificial intelligence. Elon Musk and others, including your late colleague Stephen Hawking, have warned nothing will affect the future of humanity more than the digital superintelligence, not even nuclear threats. What is your view? Um, well, it's certainly a risk. We've all read these scenarios. I mean, uh, I personally am slightly more relaxed. I think uh, in the short run, we have the uh, 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 redistribution of the labor force, which I mentioned already, uh, due to AI. Um, and I think the AI has done these wonderful things, the capacity to uh, learn to play chess as well as a world champion, just been given the rules in three hours. This is uh, really wonderful. Um, and uh, uh, this 
technology, I think, can be used in many benign ways. I mean, I, I hope it'll help physicists to understand string theory better and see if it's right, for instance, and, uh, and, and make other developments in science. Um, but um, I think there's one short-term concern also, which is that um, we will have these algorithms which are generally reliable, and we won't know exactly how they work, just like the um, uh, program that... Uh, played Go or played chess as well as a human, um, made surprising moves and the programmers don't know how it made those decisions. And I think there is a short-term ethical issue that uh, uh, if something's going to happen to us, whether we're going to be uh, um, uh, sent to prison, um, uh, deprived of credit, um, or recommended for surgical operation, it's not enough for us to be told that this is a decision of an algorithm which is generally very reliable we would like to feel that we can contest the decision and be given a reason. And I think it'll be unfortunate if we are um, controlled by th these. That's a short-term threat. Um, the long-term threat you mentioned is of a, a machine um, getting out of its box and uh, uh, affecting the world through the Internet of Things um, and uh, uh, perhaps being superhuman in its capabilities. Um, all-round capabilities and of course some people believe this at one extreme there's a Ray Kurzweil who works at Google who thinks that within 30 years we'll have this so-called singularity where the machines take over at the other extreme there's a Rodney Brooks at Harvard who's the inventor of the Baxter robot and the uh, Roomba vacuum cleaner and uh, uh, he's uh, of the other extreme, he thinks we never have this, and he thinks that uh, uh, we'll always have to worry less about artificial intelligence and about real stupidity. <laughs> and that whether he's right or not, I don't know. I I'm somewhere in between, um, but I think we do have to uh, 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 worry about the social uh, impacts of, uh, of machines and uh, not leave too many decisions to them if we can't understand their reasoning because there could be all kinds of hidden bugs which uh, we can't understand and this has emerged in many cases when they've tried to use algorithms so elon musk is backing Neuralink, which i'm sure you've heard of a silicon valley company creating devices that can be implanted in the human brain to help us merge with software and keep pace with advancements in artificial intelligence they say it could improve memory and allow for more direct connection with computers. What are your thoughts and concerns on that? Well, if, if you were right, that would be great in a way. But uh, since you've, you've mentioned this, um, uh, let me discuss one chapter in my book about, which involves Elon Musk and space. Um, because um, uh, Elon Musk, of course, is an advocate of uh, a manned space flight um, and going to Mars. And he has said he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. And, uh, and, and that's fine. Um, but um, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, I would say, that as, as far as manned spaceflight is concerned, if I was an American, I wouldn't support the NASA manned program at all. I'd leave it to the private sector. They could do it more cheaply because they can accept higher risks than NASA can impose on publicly funded civilians. So I would leave it to uh, the private sector because the case for humans is no longer a practical case. Robots can do what humans could do. It's simply an adventure to send humans into space now, and it should be left to risk-takers. So let's focus on your specialist subject for a few moments here. Yes, yes. You argue that astronomy is the first science to do more good than harm to our daily, everyday lives, more than medicine? 
Um, well, I mean, what I, uh, I think what I actually said was that the uh, um, astronomy is the oldest science except perhaps for medicine and the first to do more good than harm. Because early medicine probably did more harm than good, whereas uh, uh, in, <laughs> in developing the, uh, the calendar um, and uh, navigation, astronomy did, did good from certainly from the 15th century onwards. Um, so that, that's what I meant. But I think it's, um, uh, it's, it's my favorite science naturally, but I think it's um, uh, a very special science because it's the most universal science. It's a fundamental science, but it's the grandest environmental science as well, because everyone throughout history has looked up at the same sky, the same sort of vault of heaven, and wondered about it in their own way. So it's the most universal science, um, and just as all science brings people together, straddles all boundaries of nations and faith, astronomy does this more than any other, I think. And moreover, it's a very exciting subject uh, where the discoveries can be explained to a wide audience. They're not too specialized. And for instance, if you look at what's happened in the last few years, realizing that every star in the sky is surrounded by a retinue of planets, just as the sun is surrounded by the Earth and the familiar planets, this makes the night sky far more interesting, far more mysterious. And we now can really try to answer the question, is there life out there? Is intelligent life even? And what will we do if we discover it? So it's a wonderful subject for those of us who are privileged to do it, but also it's a subject which uh, um, uh, appeals to everyone um, and is part of a tradition that dates back for centuries. Going back to astronomy um, and the existence of life on other in other planets. Um, talk about recent findings on Mars, signs of water, and, and what is the implication of that? Well, of course, the implication is that there might have been some simple life on Mars, um, and uh, uh, the, uh, the probes that are now uh, surveying the surface of Mars may find some evidence for that. And in our solar system, uh, there may be some life um, uh, under the ice of uh, Europa, a moon of Jupiter, or Enceladus, a moon of Saturn. Some people think there might be life in the upper atmosphere of Venus, where the temperature is not so high as lower down. So there are places where there might be simple life. But of course, no one thinks there's going to be any sort of complex or advanced life in our solar system. That's why it's so exciting to have found that there are probably a million planets like the Earth orbiting other stars in our galaxy, and to ask whether any of them would have evolved uh, uh, life to at least the extent that has happened on the Earth. And uh, we will know the answer to that in 20 years' time from the next generation of big telescopes. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. In your chapter, Humanity in a Cosmic Perspective, you write poetically, we are literally the ashes of long-dead stars. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Yes, and explain the, the early universe just contained uh, uh, basically hydrogen and helium, and stars are fueled by nuclear fusion, which turns helium into carbon, then oxygen, and up the periodic table as far as iron. And when stars die, they blow out in a supernova all that debris. It goes into interstellar space, and then we condense into new stars. So the sun is a second-generation star, which is condensed from gas already contaminated by debris from stars that had already lived and died. So the sun is a sort of second or third generation star, and the earth has the same composition as the sun. So, every, so we contain in our bodies uh, atoms 
which were made before the solar system formed and indeed probably come from many hundreds of different stellar explosions all around the galaxy. So we are, in a sense, linked to the stars in a more intimate way than the astrologers ever realized. Quite poetic. (laughs) (laughs) How concerned should we all be about an asteroid destroying Earth? Uh, Well, I I would say not very. I mean, uh, it's, it's the one risk that we can quantify. Uh, we know how many asteroids there are, we know the probabilities, and uh, we can calculate this risk. It's not zero, and indeed uh, there are, as you probably know, efforts to, uh, uh, to monitor all the asteroids that above 50 metres across that might cross the Earth, um, and it should be feasible to actually d- nudge the orbits to deflect those that might. So we, it's worthwhile trying to uh, reduce the threat. But um, the reason I didn't worry too much is that the risk of an asteroid impact is not getting any higher. It's a, it was a risk for the dinosaurs, of course, and it would be a risk for the Neanderthals, but it's no, no higher. Whereas the risks that I worry most about, which I've discussed in my book and we've talked a bit about, are those uh, which are newly emergent as a consequence of humanity's actions, our collective actions on the planet's environment, or uh, individual actions misusing powerful technology. And uh, these risks are growing all the time, and we don't have a long time base to make us confident that we can survive them. And so these are, I think, the main concerns. They're, they're far larger, just like the risk of a nuclear war in the last 40 years has been far, far higher than the risk of an asteroid impact. And we now have, we have these new ones stemming from 21st century technology. And so they're the ones I worry about. Asteroids, I think, are not so serious. Okay, so we can all sleep. Although we can do something to reduce them. It's worth doing that. Right. So in the last years in astronomy, there have been quite a few highlights. For example, the detection of gravitational waves, Mm -hmm. more understanding of exoplanets. And you write in your book that was facilitated by two big developments, more powerful telescopes uh, on the ground and in space, and better computers. Yes. What are your thoughts on what's exciting for the next five years? Um, well, far more studies of um, uh, how galaxies form, far more uh, studies of uh, exoplanets using bigger telescopes. Uh, the Europeans are building a telescope with a mirror 39 metres across. That's probably almost twice the width of this room, and that'll really be able to uh, make a big leap forward uh, on this. So I, I think uh, better observations will help in astronomy. Um, but also, you mentioned computers, and of course, we can't do experiments in astronomy. We can just observe, um, but we can, in the virtual world of our computer, do experiments. We can crash two galaxies together in a computer simulation and see what happens, and do this making various different assumptions and seeing which fits the uh, observations best. So the way we improve our theories is by doing lots of options and seeing which matches the data. And computer power is improving so fast, we can now do more realistic simulations. I mean, for a long time, aeronautical engineers have not used wind tunnels. They've computed the flow of gas um, around uh, aerofoils, etc. Whereas now we can compute how stars explode, how they collide and things like that, and, uh, uh, and get models which are good enough to compare with the data and test whether we've got the right ideas or not. So that's why computer simulators are especially important in astronomy because we can't do any real observation, any, any real experiments. 
just observations. Right. So in your te TED Talk, Martin, you mentioned that your last book, Our Final Century, was retitled for the American public as Our Final Hour, underlining our instant gratification mindset. <laughs> Um, talk about mindset and the importance, that seems to be an overarching theme in your book, yes. about the importance of changing our mindset and having a longer term, more global mindset. What can we do to encourage that to happen? Um, well, I, it's true that we tend to be short term. And uh, in my book, I contrast a situation in medieval times when people thought the un universe would only last another thousand years. But nonetheless they built cathedrals which would not be finished in their lifetime. They planned 50 or 100 years ahead. Now, that at first seems paradoxical, but that's because although they thought there might be an apocalypse a thousand years from now, they thought that their children and grandchildren would live in the same world as they did. They didn't expect there was rapid change from one generation to the next. Now, things are quite different. We know that uh, our Earth has been around for billions of years, it exists for 45 million centuries, and this century is the first special one, which is the focus of my book, but it'll exist for 50 million centuries more before the sun flares up and dies. So we have this enormous uh, time span in the future and in the past. Nonetheless, we can't foresee what things will be like for the next generation, because technology is changing in a time scale of 20 or 30 years. So there's been this much greater disjunction between the time scale we can envisage overall and the time scale where we can plan. And I think that's a big problem. We sometimes do have to try and plan a bit further ahead. There's only one case where we do, and that's radioactive waste disposal, where we talk seriously about whether the deposit is safe for 10,000 years. In other cases, we don't plan more than uh, 30 years ahead, and we need to at least uh, have a longer horizon and realize that we benefit from the heritage left by people in earlier centuries, and we should not risk leaving a depleted world for future generations. Uh, just one final thought. Um, I've talked about science but there are many probably engineers here in the audience, and I include engineering and technology. And let me quote with uh, um, uh, a cartoon which my engineering friends like, and which has a certain truth in it. It shows a picture of two beavers looking up at a big hydroelectric dam. One beaver says to the other, I didn't actually build it, but it's based on my idea. <laughs> and that's reflects, uh, as engineers would agree, the balance of effort between the scientists who have the idea and the technologists and engineers who actually build something. And we need them both. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That was Martin Rees talking with Alison Van Diggelen, a guest moderator at the club who is the host of Fresh Dialogues and a BBC contributor. Insights is produced by the Commonwealth Club. We host 500 thought-provoking programs each year with the most significant thought leaders and policymakers in our world. From the heart of Silicon Valley, Insights covers a range from science and technology to politics and culture. It's now time to shift our focus from the planet beneath our feet to something far above our heads. July 2019 marked the 50th anniversary of our first steps on the surface of the moon. In that time, the Apollo missions, a fleet of robotic probes, 
and observations from Earth have taught us a lot about the Earth's surprising lunar partner. Astronomer Andrew Fracknoy takes us on a tour of the past, present, and future of the Moon, including its violent origins and the mystery of the frozen water found at its poles. He dazzles us with unique stories and interesting facts about our only natural satellite. In 2013, the International Astronomical Union named asteroid 4859 after Andrew Fracknoy in honor of his contributions to the public understanding of science. Now, let's listen to Professor Fracknoy as he enlightens us on our history of travel to the moon and the moon's origin. Thank you very much, and hello, everyone. First thing I need to say is that asteroid Fracknoy is an extremely boring asteroid <laughs> in the main asteroid belt and no danger to the Earth. So that, we have to get that out of the way. This is, of course, the 50th anniversary of our first step on the moon. It's hard for some of us to believe it's been 50 years, but uh, here is the historic coming down the ladder. Actually, no, this is the second man coming down the ladder because there was no one to take color pictures of the first. Uh, we just had those fuzzy black and whites. And so many people are doing films, books, television specials, articles in all the media, all about the astronauts. So I thought as an astronomer, it would be at my role to talk a little bit more about the moon itself. And I want to acquaint you with some of the most interesting things about our moon. Uh, first of all, it's odd that we have a moon. None of our neighbors have one. Mercury doesn't have a moon. Venus doesn't have a moon. Mars doesn't have a Well, Mars has these two captured asteroids that look like diseased potatoes. But in general, those are not considered the kind of moons you'd bring home to mom with pride. Uh, really, none of the inner planets like us have a moon. Why do we have one? And we'll talk more about that. We'll talk about the reason that we in particular have a moon. We also have a relatively large moon. Here are the two to scale in terms of size. Our moon is about one quarter the size of planet Earth. And that's pretty big. None of the planets that do have moons, the outer planets, have a moon anywhere near as big in terms of the comparative size of the two. Uh, there's quite a bit of surface area on the moon. It's a little less than the size of Asia, so there's quite a bit of territory there. The gravity on the moon, as I think many of you know, is less than the Earth, about one-sixth. So if you weigh 180 pounds on Earth, you'd weigh only 30 pounds on the moon. That's a lot better than Jenny Craig can do for you, right? So uh, it, the astronauts, of course, felt this. They really felt unusually light, and they took to leaping around, and NASA had to tell them to cut it out because the nearest doctor was 240,000 miles away. Um, also, the moon has no air, no water, so it's important to remember to bring your spacesuit. Um, there is day and night on the moon, but each lasts about 14 days. So there are 14 days of sharp sunlight and then 14 days of utter cold darkness. Of course, the Apollo missions went during the 
daytime. You would not send astronauts during the moon. And that, by the way, is why on the pictures we have of the astronauts, um, we don't have stars on the pictures because they're taken in daylight. And the kind of exposures you need in daylight don't show the faint stars. This is always a disappointment when there's that explanation for the conspiracy theories and not that it was filmed in a Hollywood studio. Um, so here is a scale model of the Earth and the Moon with distance shown. Many people think the Moon is a lot closer than it is. You actually have to put, folks, 30 Earths side by side to get to the Moon. It's further than most people think. So images like this are misleading but really beautiful. This is one of those pictures that we now have of the Earth-Moon system taken from far away. This happens to be a spacecraft 31 million miles away looking back with its telescope on the Earth-Moon system. And you see the Moon slowly making its way across the face of the Earth. Uh, but it's a lot further away than that seems to imply. Now, another thing that's important to know about the moon is that it goes around the earth at the same rate that it goes around itself. Now, does that make sense? Let me say it again. The moon goes around the earth at the same rate that it turns around itself. There's a side of the moon that always faces the earth. And there's a side of the moon that always faces away from the Earth. So until we had the space program, we only saw the near side of the moon. The far side of the moon was completely invisible to us. Uh, this is called synchronous rotation. By the way, this is something gravity likes to do. Gravity, like your uncle, is cheap. And that means it likes to get into the sort of minimum energy configuration. And that's lower energy when one side is facing toward the Earth and the rotation and the revolution are at the same rate. That's lower energy. Uh, so there is a near side and a far side, but with apologies to Pink Floyd, there's no dark side of the moon. The sides of the moon get lit up and get dark in this 14-day, 14-day cycle. But no part of the moon is always dark. Only after the space age began did we see the other side of the moon. Generally, all we saw was this. This is a really nice picture of the near side of the moon. And what I want you to look at are the dark splotches. That's the technical term, the dark splotches. Now, can you look at those and tell me what shape they are? I want to submit for your consideration that every dark splotch is round. Now you say, no, that's not true. I'm looking at the picture and some of them are really weird shaped, but those weird shapes are actually superpositions of round shapes. If you look carefully, all the shapes are round with some round ones on top of other round ones. And the reason is that every one of those dark areas was made by some large cosmic chunk hitting the moon so fast and so hard it exploded. And these explosions always make round craters. Eventually, lava from within the moon filled in the darker craters, and then other hits came on top of them, were also filled in, and so you get all these superpositions of round, round craters testifying to the violent youth of the moon. 
So what did we know about the moon before we visited and what have we learned since then? I want to show you a fake picture of the moon because it's one of my favorite pictures. This was actually two pictures of the moon pasted together. And you see how the shadows are much better than the previous picture I showed you? This is a half moon and another half moon pasted together at the Lick Observatory. And the reason this is good is because then there are shadows. And you can see the shadows are opposite on the right and left side, but all the craters stand out more when you have this kind of shadowing. And so you can see that the moon is covered with craters, not just the big black and dark ones that we talked about, but craters everywhere. And we divide the moon into two kinds of terrain, the dark regions, which are called the maria, Maria, not a character in West Side Story, but it means seas or oceans in Latin. They thought early on that these dark areas were smooth and therefore they must be oceans on the moon. And many of these Maria are named after emotions. So we landed in the sea of tranquility with uh, Apollo 1. And then the other areas, which are lighter and more cratered are called the highlands because they're higher than the low craters, the low uh, maria. Uh, and generally, we, we know that about 17% of the moon is maria, and 83% is highlands. Now, if you're looking at this picture, you should be shaking your hands. No way. I'm sorry. 17% is Maria? That's not right. Look at how much of this picture is taken up with the dark splotches. So this leads us to the next big discovery, which is the backside of the moon, the far side of the moon, has far fewer Maria. And we're not entirely sure why. That's still a mystery. The crust is thicker. We think the Maria formed early on when some part of the moon was still molten. And so when the giant impact craters formed, not only did they carve out a big bowl, but then from underneath, some lava seeped up and filled with dark lava, those giant bowls made by the impact. Later, the moon had cooled enough so that lava inside the moon had congealed and was no longer available to come to the surface. And so the later craters are not filled with this dark material. They have a much lighter appearance. So we knew a little bit about the moon before we went. And when the space age began, the moon was very much on the minds of our leaders. So here are some of the firsts that happened in terms of moon exploration. You may know some of these and not others. In September 1959, the first spacecraft to reach the moon was the Luna 2 from what was then called the Soviet Union, today Russia, uh, and it just crashed. But they didn't care. They were first on the moon. Um, by October of that same year, the first flyby took place, and the Luna 3 spacecraft was actually able to take photos of the far side of the moon. And they were terrible pictures, but sensational for just existing. We had never seen the backside before. Uh, in 1966, the Luna 9, still Soviet mission, was able, I should say, to soft land on the moon. And that was the first robotic soft landing. And then three years later, Apollo 11 was the first human uh, to take a step 
on the moon. But the first are not over yet, although many spacecraft have orbited the moon and shown us the far side in exquisite detail. No soft landing has happened on the backside of the moon. So in January of this year, the Chinese uh, soft landed the Chang'e 4 spacecraft, and they'd actually had a cute little rover called the Jade Rabbit. I'll show you that. Um, and it was able to tool around on the backside of the moon. Um, but of course, we had the first landing, uh, the first planting of a flag, and of course, the first human geologist. Because every astronaut was trained to notice interesting rocks and to pick them up and bring them back to Earth. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, not only did we land on the moon in 1969, but even better, we came back which was a very important part of the mission. Right here is that historic photograph of the astronauts rising to meet the command module and then uh, all of them returning to Earth. When they got back to Earth, they were quarantined, as many of you may remember, because we were worried about the possibility of there being moon germs that in some way would infect us on Earth. Even though the moon has no air and no water, we were not 100% sure that it was safe. And so they spent some time in quarantine and then uh, turned out to be just fine and were released back into everyday life, although they never had an everyday life after that. The further uh, Apollo missions not only sent people to the moon, but cars. Uh, here's the, what was called the dune buggy on Apollo 16. Uh, by the way, these cars were electric cars. They cost $38 million each. That, well, I should say the first one cost $38 million to develop. Uh, it was hinged so they could fold it up and hang it up in the spacecraft. And the top speed was 8 miles per hour. So a Tesla it was not, but it was a very useful electric car for exploring the moon. The other thing that the astronauts did, of course, was to set up scientific experiments. There was a primitive suite on Apollo 11 and then much more sophisticated suites of instruments and things that they would leave behind to measure conditions on the moon. Here's a picture of one of them all set up. And the, the astronauts all brought back rocks for a total of 842 pounds of rocks being brought back. So among the instruments that were left on the moon were seismometers measuring earthquakes. No, not earthquakes, but moonquakes. And there are moonquakes. Some we made ourselves, dropping some of our equipment on the moon. Uh, some came when chunks of material hit the moon, as they continue to do. And some came naturally from inside the moon. So we actually know from the waves set up by moonquakes what the interior of the moon is like. But perhaps the most exciting experiment left behind by the astronauts were the laser reflectors. Now, do you remember this? Those of you who were not tuned in at the time or not even alive, let me tell you what happened. We brought to the moon and pointed at the earth reflective mirrors, essentially a big square mirror. And then an observatory at the University of Texas was equipped with a powerful laser that bounced the laser beam off the moon and caught it back on its way back in the, to the telescope. So we reflected a laser beam from the moon many, many times. 
And this allowed us to measure the distance to the moon. We knew the speed of light. We knew when we sent the laser. We knew when the laser came back to within a fraction of a second. And that allowed us to measure the distance to the moon to within inches. I'm not kidding. To within inches. And we've gotten better than that. Fractions of an inch now. Now, I want to switch to a question that I think many people have and we've been able to answer because of Apollo. And that's this question. Where did the moon come from? Or to put it another way, how come all our neighbor planets don't have a moon and we have a big moon? And before we went to the moon, we had two theories about why this was. They were very simple. Theory number one, the moon came out of the earth. Somehow something launched the moon out of the earth and it, it somehow then went into orbit around the earth because we have gravity on earth. And so the moon is a product of our planet. If that's true, then the moon in its chemical makeup and what it's made of should resemble the earth. The other theory was, if the moon was not from the earth, it came from far away. It was part of some other section of our solar system. It ventured too close to the earth, was captured, and went into orbit around the earth. In that case, the moon should be made up of different materials than the earth. And we used to tell this to students as a perfect example of how science works. You have these two competing theories. Now we're going to go to the moon. We're going to get rocks back. We'll analyze what they're made of, and we'll be able to choose between these two simple theories. Well, of course, nature never is as cooperative as we pretend it is. When we actually got the moon rocks, neither theory was right. The moon rocks were similar to the Earth, but not outrageously similar. And the moon rocks were different from the Earth, but not outrageously different. There was just enough difference that neither theory worked. And you could see astronomers specializing in the moon tearing their hair out in 1970 when these ideas became clear. So what did we learn from analyzing the rocks? And I'm not going to go into a lot of technical detail, but let me tell you three things that we learned that turned out to be the key to solving the puzzle of the moon. First of all, the moon is very dry. It has so little water so little of materials that evaporate easily that we think it's unusually different from the Earth. The Earth is, of course, has a lot more water, and the Earth also has a lot of lighter materials which have gone into our atmosphere. And those materials are missing, for the most part, from the Moon. The other thing is that the Moon has much less iron than the Earth does. Iron is a heavy material. On Earth, it sank down into the core of the Earth and makes up the center of our planet. And then finally, we found some light rocks on the moon that looked like, forgive the, the technical term, geological scum. So what we think happened is that the early moon was at least on the outside molten, and you know what happens in a liquid, lighter things rise to the top, heavier things sink to the bottom. And there were rocks found on the moon, much to the excitement of geologists, which could only rise to the top, could only be on the surface, if the moon was molten. So it's deficient in light elements, it's deficient in iron, and it must have been molten at some time. All of that implies that there must have been heat 
as part of this formation process. And so we think now that there was a much more dramatic and catastrophic beginning to the moon. This was an idea that two pairs of astronomers on either side of the United States had at roughly the same time. And it's called the giant impact hypothesis. What we think happened is that in the early solar system, before any of the planets settled down into their present state, there were a lot more objects, a lot more bodies going around the solar system than we had today. What we think happened is that smaller pieces gathered together into bigger pieces, and there was a time when there were a bunch of mini planets, small maybe Mars size or smaller planets going around the solar system. And not all of them were on stable orbits, so they would hit each other. And we think early on in the history of the solar system, the early Earth, while it was still quite hot, was hit by one of these Mars-sized mini-planets. Some people think it might have just been a glancing blow rather than a direct blow, but there's discussion about that. But when the two objects hit, it completely destroyed the mini-planet and took off quite a bit of the outside of the Earth. We think whatever iron there might have been in the mini-planet was so heavy in this hot, molten situation, it sank to the bottom of the, of the middle of the Earth, so it became part of the core of the Earth. Light materials like water were evaporated from the debris of this collision, and then the debris itself went into orbit around the Earth. All that was left were the chunks, the violent chunks of this collision, and they went into orbit in a kind of cloud around the Earth, and that eventually coalesced into the Moon. And because everything was so hot, all the light elements were lost. Because the whole process was so violent, when the Moon formed, it was molten, and so the geological scum could rise to the top. And so this explains everything we've learned about the moon from Apollo and other missions. Was there really such a giant collision? We can't prove that. At the time, the Earth became molten enough, so there's no crater left from that. Uh, it all reformed into a sphere. But this is what we now think about the, the moon. And the moon cooled. Then it got hit by chunk after chunk, making the Maria and later the smaller craters. It still gets hit all the time. So its surface is actually pulverized. There have been so many hits that there's a fine dust made up of tiny fragments of all the impacts over billions of years. And it was that fine dust into which the astronauts now stepped and made those lasting footprints on the surface of the moon. Finally, what about the future? We know that about 25 missions are planned, most of them robotic missions. We ourselves are thinking about a uh, possibility of eventually having a personed mission to the moon. We're actually thinking about sending a woman with the Artemis mission, but it's way behind schedule and way over cost. And what the, the head of NASA asked for is only a down payment. So whether we'll make it by 2024, nobody knows. But in the longer run, people are thinking about setting up settlements on the moon. Perhaps even on the backside of the moon, where we might set up telescopes and radio antennas which are completely shielded from the Earth by the Moon itself. 
That could be the darkest, quietest observatory we have ever built on the backside of the moon. What a place, for example, to do SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, where we could listen in for messages from alien civilizations with no disturbance from communications from Earth. Of course, we'd have to have a satellite like the Chinese do so that as it goes around, it will allow the backside to communicate with the Earth. So these plans are underway, and some people who like to think long-range are talking now about whether or not we need a settlement on the moon because genetically speaking, we on Earth have all our eggs in one basket, if you'll pardon the expression, right? All of human life, all of Earth life is on this planet. If some giant chunk from space or our own neglect destroys the Earth, we're gone. And so wouldn't it make sense to have a separate settlement? Now, whether that should be on the moon or Mars is a topic for future generations to think about, but certainly one reason to go to the moon is because the Earth is a fragile planet which we're not taking great care of. So let me end with the following thought. The steps that we took on the moon 50 years ago, they will be there for millions of years. There's no water, no weather, nothing that will destroy these. Maybe an impact occasionally, but those footprints are pretty safe on the moon. They will be there for millions of years. Can we say the same about the creatures who made the footsteps? Will we still be around then? For now, I think that despite all the problems and confusion on Earth, it's really nice for us to know that we can still continue to ask the big questions like we've been asking about where we come from and to think of big plans for where we might be going because it's those big thoughts, after all, that are the hallmark and pride of being human. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Insights, a production of the Commonwealth Club of California. Today's program, From the Earth to the Moon, What Have We Learned?, included segments from two club programs, Martin Rees, Prospects for Humanity, and astronomer Andrew Fracknoy, 50 years since our first step. Listen to the full hour-long conversations on our website at commonwealthclub.org podcasts. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. If you found this program thought-provoking, consider joining us in person for one of our many upcoming events in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, or Marin. Become a member of the club, think your way around the world with our travel program, or find out more about the thousands of podcasts we host by going to our website, commonwealthclub.org. Commonwealth Club event producers for Martin Rees were Kara Iwahashi and Georgette Gayhew, and the event producer for astronomer Andrew Fracknoy was George Dobbins. The club's audio engineers for this radio program are Justin Norton, Arnav Gupta, and Mark Kirchner. I'm Gloria Duffy, president and CEO of the club. We'll be back soon with more insights from fascinating people on the most interesting topics of the day. 